It's good to see everyone here this morning. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Um, as was mentioned, you're not getting first string, you're not getting second string, you're not getting third string. Somewhere down the line, you're getting me instead of Jerry McCorkle, but I am grateful for the opportunity. Uh, I consider it a blessing to be able to share God's word with anyone. Uh, I love it. I love talking about it. I love reading it. It's just, it's just wonderful. But um, lucky for all of us, it is not going to be you know, anything about my strength or my ability this morning is going to be the scriptures that are going to be bringing the message. And we can all be, take confidence in the scriptures that what it has to share with us is going to be edifying, convicting, encouraging for us. Um, just a, a few things to clear up. I grew up both an Auburn and Sooners fan, um, but in bowl season, always SEC. So that's just, that's how I grew up. Um, grew up in a football family, although once I got into college and in math, that interest did start decreasing. <laughs> We're going to be talking about biblical justice this morning. And I have it titled as a scratch in the surface because what we're going to see is that this topic in the scriptures is massive and it's multifaceted. Okay, there's many different um, pieces to it. If you're going to use another analogy, it might be a mosaic. There's lots of different types of pictures that appear when you're trying to get a picture of biblical justice. And so we're not going to be able to cover this topic in its entirety, but what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the scriptures to see how it describes it. And to orient ourselves this morning, I want to start by talking about the word hope, because I think most of us here are probably aware of the fact that the way we use the word hope as modern Americans is not exactly the way that the scriptures use the word hope. Because when we use the word hope, we often mean it like it's a wish, or maybe it's a pipe dream, like I hope to go to Italy one day, or I hope that, you know, Alabama doesn't win the national championship game this year. It's a, it's a wish. It's a pipe dream. But this is not the hope that the scriptures refer to. The hope that the scriptures refer to is a hope that is an expectation or a confidence. So that when Paul says the hope of salvation, he's not talking about some sort of pipe dream. He's not talking about some sort of wish. He's talking about an expectation that we can have. So we can all kind of understand and we can all see that sometimes the way we use words as modern Americans is different than the way that the scriptures is going to use that word. And what I would like to th- thank you, uh, ask you to consider this morning is that maybe justice is the same way. That maybe the way that modern Americans think about justice and talk about justice, maybe even the way that you talk about justice and think about justice is distinct from in some way than the way distinct from in some way that the way the Bible talks about justice, that there's a difference somewhere. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at what the scriptures say about justice. And we're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, where it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and cumin, mint and dill and cumin, and, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says this is a weightier matter of the law. Justice. And what you can see here. And if you go and you read all of Matthew chapter 23. There's no description of justice. Jesus just says do it. And so if you read this passage. And you look at what Jesus says about justice. You're left wondering what is it? 
What is he referring to when he says justice here? And the reason why he doesn't have to explain it to the scribes and the Pharisees is because they know the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. They know the justice that the Old Testament speaks of. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking to the Old Testament, to its description of justice, to understand the justice that Jesus refers to here. And in order to do that, what we're going to have to do is dive a little bit into the Hebrew. And I don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, But we are going to say a few things that I think is really helpful to understand as we're going to look at the mosaic of justice as the Old Testament scriptures describe it. And so we've got these three different, uh, I'm going to call them families of words that talk about justice in the Old Testament. And they're going to be color-coded throughout. So anytime you see the orange color, it came from one of these words in the scriptures, the yellow, the green. And one of the things I really want to draw to your attention is the numbers. This orange family is used 624 times, the yellow 46 times, and the green 576 times. Over 1,000 times these words are used in the Old Testament, and these are words that deal with justice. So like I said, it's a scratch in the surface. There's no way we're going to read all 1,000 of these this morning. I think you should. It'd be great. But it's, it's too much to cover. So we're going to just take a scratch in the surface, and we're going to do our best to understand what these words mean when they talk about justice. And the thing that we have to understand is that Hebrew words are just like English words. You know, you can have one word that is used in many different ways. For instance, I have the word order on the screen, and I can use the word order in a number of ways. Like I could say, I put the bills in order from largest to smallest, right? And there it's a noun, and you know what I'm saying. I could equivalently say, I ordered the bills from largest to smallest. And I've said the same thing, but now I've used it as a verb. Or I could say, I received orders from my commanding officer. And again, it's a noun, but it's a completely different noun than the first one. And so English words get used, they get recycled, they get uh, reused this way. And so we're all familiar with this. And the same thing is true for these Hebrew words where this word mishpat gets used for law, sometimes it's used for judgment, sometimes it's justice, and sometimes it's a right, like your rights, not like correct. Uh, This word shafat, it's to judge or to vindicate or defend. All of these words get used in more than one way as you look at their use in the scriptures. And one of the main reasons I'm going through this is because these T words are really important for understanding, for thinking about justice, because we learn something from these T words that um, is maybe a little bit surprising. Because two of these words get used sometimes as righteousness, sometimes as justice, depending on the translation of the Bible that you're looking at. And I'm going to give you an example of that here with 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. If you're reading the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is the translation I'll use for the rest of the sermon, it says that David administered justice and righteousness. Okay, so we got orange and green. Justice and righteousness. But if you look at the New King James Version, it says David administered judgment and justice. So the same Hebrew word gets translated as righteousness in one version and justice in another version. And the reason why is because these T words sometimes sound like justice. Sometimes they sound like righteousness. What does this mean? It means that there's something surprising we have to look for when we're going to understand biblical justice. We have to look for righteousness. 
If you're going to understand biblical justice, you have to keep your eyes peeled for the word righteousness. And if you didn't look at this stuff, you might not think to do so. So that's why it's important. One of the questions that it sort of creates that I just want to address it briefly is, is righteousness the same thing as justice? When you read it in the scriptures, so that you think of these two words as equal synonyms. And I'm actually not going to answer that question. But what I am going to suggest to you is that uh, these words are so connected that it's hard to tell the difference a lot of times. And we actually have modern English equivalents. Okay, Let's look at this example. The Pentatonics cover of Bohemian Rhapsody does not do the song justice. Not only would this be a true statement, this would be a very valid usage of justice. We use justice in this way. Okay, It doesn't do it justice. But I could equivalently say, Pentatonics does not do right by the song Bohemian Rhapsody and their cover of it. And this is saying the exact same thing as the first one. But now instead of using justice, I'm using this phrase, do right by, and I've entered into the realm of righteousness. And so this word righteousness and this word justice, they sound a lot like the same thing a lot of times. And that's true for the underlying Hebrew as well. So as we look to the Bible and we try to understand biblical justice, we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled for righteousness as well. Because it's going to teach us something about how Jesus understood justice from the Old Testament scriptures. And so my goal this morning is to answer these three questions. Who does justice? What does it look like? And what is the goal of it? These are my three questions. And we're going to do the the last two simultaneously because it's hard to parse them. And we're going to do the first one on its own. But when we get to the last one, we're really emphatic about the question I'm actually, ans- I'm actually asking. The question I'm actually asking is, what does it look like? What is the goal of it? And if you can keep that question in mind, what I'm trying to do will hopefully create a clearer picture of what justice is. Okay? And I think that's, a, to me, framing it this way to me makes it a whole lot easier to understand. What does it look like? What's the goal of it? Let's start with um, what is, who does it? Who does justice? We're going to look at a few Psalms here. Psalm chapter 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Talking about God here. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. Makes it seem pretty important to me. Psalm 99 verse 4 says the strength of the king, talking about God, the the king, God, loves justice. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So God's strength loves justice. God executes justice and righteousness. One more here. It's it's my favorite. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 says, But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. He delights in these things. I love this passage because if you're going to boast in anything, boast in knowing God. And as you know him to be what? One who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. One of the things that these three scriptures I think really portrays to us that justice is an essential characteristic of God. It is essential to who He is. 
And so if you want to understand God, you've got to understand justice. If you want to understand God, you've got to understand justice because he does it, he loves it, it's the foundation of his throne. So we want to understand it. Next group of people that we see um, having to do justice, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Now, Proverbs 31, many of you know it as the chapter about the virtuous woman. And if you go on to verse 10, it begins talking about the virtuous woman. But the first nine verses are not about the virtuous woman. Because the whole chapter is really wisdom for a king. And so here we have wisdom for a king being to judge righteously, defend the rights for the needy and the afflicted. For the rights of all the unfortunate, open his mouth for them. This is uh, another group of people, the kings, the leaders, is what I'm going to broaden it to, are supposed to practice justice. We read 2 Samuel chapter 8 earlier, that David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. You can see Solomon saying the same thing about Solomon. The king is supposed to be one who practices justice and righteousness. People in leadership are supposed to be doing this. Last group of people uh, we're going to look at has a few verses here. Genesis chapter 18, 19. Another one of my favorites. Uh, The reason why this is my favorite is because it's the first one. If you're looking through the scriptures for where righteousness and justice appear, these, these Greek words appear together. First one, right here, talking to Abraham. For God speaking says, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. He has chosen Abraham so that he and his children will do this, righteousness and justice. So that's all of God's people are supposed to be doing, righteousness and justice. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3 says, To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Who does sacrifices? Everyone. Who's supposed to do righteousness and justice? Everyone. Last one, Micah 6, 8. The passage I believe Jesus is referencing in Matthew 23, 23. says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So just from this brief look at it, who does justice? God does justice. Leaders do justice. Anyone does justice. And this might be a surprise to you because when I think of justice, I think of courtrooms. I think of a justice system. I think of leaders and I think of God. I don't think about me. But when the scriptures talk about justice, it's everybody's job. And so this makes the next question all the more important. What's it look like? If it's expected, if it's something for everyone to do, what's it look like? If this is an essential characteristic of God, and I can't understand Him without understanding justice, what does it look like? What's the goal of justice? What are you trying to accomplish when you do justice? And that's what we're spending the bulk of our time on this morning trying to get a clear picture of what exactly it is that justice looks like and it's trying to accomplish. And we're going to start by looking at uh, when God does justice and sort of grounding our picture in God and His practice of justice. 
And we're going to see that it's, it's, a, it's a mosaic, many facets. In Isaiah chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 15, it says, The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgments with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Um, brief note here, I have a really hard time cutting. And so the way I compromise that is I give you the list of all the other verses I wanted to read, but we don't have time for. So we're not going to read all these. These are just extras for you to go read in your own time if you want. Um, so Isaiah chapter 3, it's a bit of a bleak picture. It's doom and gloom. And the reason why it's doom and gloom is because these leaders have been, what does it say? Grinding the face of the poor. Crushing God's people. And so justice here in this picture is God coming with a guilty verdict and a promise of punishment. Okay, if you read through Isaiah chapter 3, there's a promise of punishment here. And God is entering into judgment to declare them guilty of this. And he's standing to judge. And this is a picture of justice that I think most of us are kind of familiar with, but also a lot of the people in our society are very uncomfortable with. That the picture of God's justice is one that involves destruction and punishment. But it's very clearly. It's very clearly there. But the thing about biblical justice is that it doesn't stop there. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24, Jeremiah says, Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. This passage is, is extremely uh, interesting to me because it shows that there's a distinction, a contrast between justice and anger. Because a lot of times when we think about punishment and God doing the, one, the punishing, we think about the angry God, right? But there's a distinction here. Correct me. But with justice, not anger, or you'll bring me to nothing. There's, there's a distinction between justice and anger in the correction that's happening. That's the goal here, correction, that would not annihilate. And I think as parents, we can kind of understand this, right? Like, I don't have to be angry at my kid to tell them to stop doing something. I mean, I, sometimes I do get angry and I have to stop myself or I will annihilate them, right? But... I don't have to be angry at my kid for stuffing macaroni noodles up their nose to correct them to not do that. It's just what's best for them. It's what's best for being, showing uh, gratitude to my wife for making the macaroni noodles. Correcting doesn't always have to involve anger. Justice doesn't always have to involve anger. Doesn't for God, doesn't for us. In Psalm chapter 76, verses 8 9, it says, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Notice the two things that are appearing at the same time for justice here. God, two different Hebrew words, by the way, both translated judgment. God caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. Okay, so there's shaking in your tube socks going on here. Because... There's a guilty verdict. There's punishment that's coming because there's some wicked people here. But there's, there's, a, there's a flip side of this too. When God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. And so depending on who you are, God's judgment sometimes is going to be terrifying and sometimes it's going to be hope bringing. 
God's justice, God's judgment, it's going to look like something that you don't want or it's going to be the thing that you want more than anything. Because it's not just about punishment. It's not just about correction. It also is about salvation. God's justice brings about salvation for his people. This is summed up pretty nicely in Psalm chapter 75, verse 7, where it says, But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. That in the picture of justice, we don't see just a putting down, but we also see an exalting. And God's justice harmonizes these two things perfectly. And we get it wrong and we fail to do it, but that's what God is able to do, is to harmonize these two things. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we get a little bit more of this um, salvation aspect to it. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. In the context, um, there is a purging of the wicked that happens just before verse 26. But the goal that God has here is to restore. He says, I will restore your judges as at the first. The goal that he has with justice is to redeem. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. And so the goal for God's justice is not just some punishment, but there's also redemption and a restoration that he has in mind. Psalm chapter 10 speaks to this end as well, where it says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He's going to vindicate, to defend, to restore. And the goal is so that People will stop terrorizing each other. One more. Um, This one's mind-boggling. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. He longs to be gracious. He waits on high to have compassion for, because the Lord is a God of justice. He waits to have compassion. He waits to be gracious because of his justice. I mean, so often when I think of justice, grace doesn't enter the picture. Compassion doesn't enter the picture. But what this passage shows us is that if your idea, your conception of justice is diametrically opposed to grace and compassion, it's not biblical justice. Because God being a God of justice is what leads him to show, to want grace, to want to show compassion. They're not opposed to each other. They're harmonized perfectly in our God. And so when God does justice, the goals that we saw was to, was to correct, was for salvation, was for redemption, restoration, and to end the terror of mankind on other people. The end the terror on man. And to have grace and compassion. And what it looked like as we were looking at these is to 
um, punish those who terrorize others, to chastise without necessarily annihilating, uh, and to raise up the fallen and the lowly, and to vindicate. This is the picture of God's justice from what we've seen here. And this is what's fir- this firmly establishes the picture of justice that we need to understand when everyone should be doing justice. Because what we're going to see is that when the people are called to be doing justice, it's going to look a lot like the same thing. There's certain limitations, of course. Um, but this sort of lays the bedrock for our understanding of justice as a biblical concept and justice as what we are supposed to be doing as people. And so what we're going to turn to now is, is briefly look at when justice is present. Okay, And so it's not quite when people do justice. It's, it's about when justice is present. It's a little more abstract. Um, think about it like we could, I think we all could probably understand um, a hope-filled community if someone said that. I think we would have some idea of what that means. Well, it's, it's sort of the analog of that, but with justice. If justice is permeating a society, if justice is permeating a community, uh, what does it look like? What's the picture? And we're first going to see what it doesn't look like. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. When God looks for justice, he's not looking for this, but this is what he finds. He finds violence. Here's people crying out. And so if you're looking to, to a land, if you're looking to a nation or a society, and you see violence and you see cries of distress, you're not finding justice there. Some justice is lacking. Instead, what justice brings is what we see in Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. The goal of righteousness here or or the picture of what justice and righteousness brings is peace, quietness and confidence. That's the end result of of a society or a land that is filled with justice. And this this peace is a little different maybe than even our own peace. It's it's shalom, it's, it's wholeness, it's healthiness. That's what you find in a place where justice exists. And so when justice is present, there's not bloodshed or oppression. There's not cries for help. There's peace, there's quietness, and confidence. And so this gives us a nice litmus test because you can look to your surroundings. You can look to your families. You can look to your your community. You can look to your church family. You can look to the nation, another nation. You can look to these groupings of people and you can ask, what do I see there? Because if you see violence and cries of distress, you know there's some justice lacking. But if you see peace and quietness and confidence, you can be confident that justice is present. Lastly, we're turning to what does it look like 
when people do justice. And I've mixed kings and people, leaders and people in here, and I'll be sure to clarify as we go through. Um, but we're going to get a, a really coherent picture here of what it looks like when people do justice. Uh, and we're, the first one we're going to look at is affirming what we just saw in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. It says, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. If you want peace in your gates, guess what you should do? Or if you want peace in your gates, this is what you should do. You should judge with truth and judgment. Practice justice for the goal of peace. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So we were just in Isaiah 1, uh, you know, probably like 10 slides ago, talking about God doing justice. And the goal of his justice there was to redeem and to restore. And so it shouldn't be too surprising that in the same context when we're looking at him telling his people to seek justice, that is very similar. There's a redemption and a restoration, but also an ending of the terror of man on other people. Reprove the ruthless, but defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Do these things. It's not just about not doing the bad stuff. You've got to do the good stuff too. We can also see that in Jeremiah chapter 22, 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of, Is of Judah and there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah who sits on David's throne. You and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Okay, so who's, who's the audience? The king of Judah, your servants, and the people who enter these gates. I think that covers everyone. This is what you should do. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. Deliver the one that's been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Rescue them from this situation. And don't mistreat people. Don't do people wrong. Continuing on in Jeremiah 22, if you look later on, um, it begins to address specifically the king. And when it specifically addresses the king here, it says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice. Okay, so we're getting, about to get a picture of what it looks like when someone doesn't do justice. Who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? So, I love the last question. It's sarcastic. Uh, but the, um, I mean, this is very simple. I, I, I pay people their wages. If you don't pay people their wages, that's an injustice. That's what he's giving on to this king for. He didn't practice justice and righteousness in the way he felt to do it because he didn't pay people for their wages. That's a pretty simple application. But it's an injustice to steal small or great from the people you owe money, from the people that you should be paying for their wages. Continuing on, though, we're about to see a picture of what it means to do justice. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. 
Is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. But your eyes and your heart are intense only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. This is what it meant to do justice and righteousness. What his father did. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. Is that not what it means to know me? I mean, that's just, that statement just stands out to me so much. You want to be like Paul who says, I count everything else dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ. You want to be like Paul, I know God and I glory in knowing God. What does it mean to know God? To practice justice and righteousness. To plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy. That's justice and righteousness. Not to turn a blind eye or a cold shoulder. Not to hear the cries of distress and just let them continue, but to plead the cause. Last one about a king here, Psalm 72, 1-4. through 4. This is about a picture of the ideal king. Some people attribute this as a messianic prophecy. Uh, Give the king your judgment, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. I mean, just look at how permeated this is with this justice language. I mean, you've got all three different types. The king's supposed to do justice. A leader's supposed to do justice. And what it looks like in this case is to vindicate the afflicted of the people, to save the children of the needy, to crush the oppressor. It's about ending the terror of man and restoring people who are hurting and rescuing them. And so when people do justice, what was the picture? The picture was that the, of having a goal for peace, to have a goal of the restoration of the fallen, to end the terror of man. And what did it look like? Reproving those who oppress. Telling them to stop. Telling them they shouldn't do that anymore. Delivering or restoring the oppressed. Defending or pleading for the vulnerable. And paying people their wages. This is justice and righteousness. We're going we're gonna to finish here with a, with a character, a, sh- a brief character study of Job. In Job chapter 29, Job is giving his final defense against the three people who have been antagonizing him. You know, he had two people come, they were bothering him, and then a third person came along and just decided to, you know, add on to the, to the pummeling of Job. And this is his final defense to say, I'm not a bad guy. And this is how he does it. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. 
What we need to understand about Job is that he's not nobility. You know, he's not a prince. He's not a king. He's got money before it all got taken away. And he's got respect from other people, but he's just a guy. He's just a guy that loves the Lord and apparently clothed himself with justice and righteousness. And what does it look like when just a guy does justice here? I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. He didn't say it was their own fault. He didn't turn a cold shoulder. He didn't just look for someone else to blame or to do it. He delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. The one ready to perish, the blessing. This is someone on their deathbed. He's with someone on their deathbed bringing them joy in the final moments of their life and so the blessing of that person comes upon him. The widow, the one who's lost their family member, the one who's lost their support system, he's there for them. He brings joy to their heart. And that's what it looks like for just a guy to do justice. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He helped people who had disabilities in ways that they couldn't help themselves. If they couldn't see, he did the seeing for them. If they couldn't walk, he did the walking for them. You know what a burden that had to be in a day and age without wheelchairs and cars? He had to carry some people. That's what it looked like for just a guy to do justice. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. What do we know about fathers? The the good kind anyway. They're there. They're present. They actually try to care about things they wouldn't care about otherwise. I know. I have a four-year-old daughter. And I'm not even a very good one. And I try to care about things that they care about. The needy person who has their needs, their wants that are different than Job's, He's a father to them. He's there for them. And he investigates the case he doesn't know. If he hears someone crying for help, he doesn't say, well, it must be their own fault. It must be a lack of personal responsibility. He investigates the case he doesn't know. He does something to assist them. It's just a guy doing justice. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. We've got a metaphor here. I don't think we're supposed to picture someone biting another person. So what's the teeth? What's the weapon? What's the jaws? What do the jaws do to the teeth for a bite? It brings power to the bite. That's what makes it hurt. If you didn't have jaws, your teeth wouldn't hurt, right? Wouldn't be able to chew anything. He's rescuing the person from the power of their oppressor. That's Jeremiah 22. He's doing Jeremiah 22. He's rescuing the one who's been robbed from the power of their oppressor. He's removing the weapon and rescuing those who've been hurt. This is what it looks like for God to do justice. This is the justice that Jesus was talking about. And we've looked at a bunch of stuff this morning. We've got a a whole list of goals here that you're supposed to pursue with justice. We've got a long list of what it looks like to do justice. And a lot of it can be sort of captured in like a microcosm, a a picture of a parent trying to do right by his children. I want to sort of highlight some of these principles here with this example 
Um, so I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter. My daughter is older than my son, so I'll make my daughter the antagonist here. Um, if my daughter has a stick and she whacks my son with that stick and makes him bleed, what does justice look like from these principles? Well, I've got to remove the weapon. <laughs> and I've got to punish my daughter in some way, if it's done with anger especially, out of anger. And that's not just punishment for justice for all of her. That's justice for my daughter. Because you correct. Correcting is justice. And once I remove the weapon and I correct my daughter, well, there's still all of her to turn to. Because justice isn't about, isn't necessarily, how do I want to say this? Justice isn't solely about the offender. It's about the offended as well. You don't just punish the evildoer, you restore the fallen. And so I don't just leave Oliver to do it by himself necessarily. I mean, he's 19 months old, so he definitely can't put a Band-Aid on and get an alcohol wipe out and wipe his blood off. Got to clean the wound, got to bandage him, make sure he's okay, and do my best to restore the peace and the relationship between my son and my daughter. Just a small picture of what justice might look like in a situation and he can get a whole lot more complicated once we, once we do that. He can get complicated just with parenting. And it's kind of a daunting task. I mean, just look at that list. I don't know about you, but I look at that list and I think, that's daunting, that seems impossible, really impractical too. And, you know, with the world in all of its wisdom, it would be impossible. But with God, it's not impossible. And we can either sit around and make excuses like it's not practical or it doesn't seem possible, or we can let God use us. And we can choose to practice justice the way God calls us to. Because this is what justice looks like. And we can either take a step forward and try to do some of these things, or we can just deny God's will as just too impractical. And so if you are like me and you look at this list and it just seems too long, too hard, here's my, here's my admonition. Pick one. Start there. Pick one and work on it. Pick one way that you can begin to practice justice or pursuing justice in your life and start there. Because the last thing we want to do is turn a blind eye to God's will and turn a blind eye, blind eye to people who need justice. If we can help you to take that step forward, we would love to do that. If you'll have a seat on the front as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.